Welcome to the RSP Quick Game with Mark Schofield, Stephen A. Smith's taxi driver. Me, I'm, I'm Miss Taylor, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> One of those, you know. We we supply all his hot takes, yeah. basically. So That's what we do. if you don't like hot takes, just leave now. There you go. Um, show's over. But uh, let's just begin, you know. As always, thoughts on the Patriots' performance? It was a dazzling game. Yeah, I, I tweeted it during the game. It, it, it was like pure uncut insanity watching that game live um, and, and even rewatching it. I mean, there are a number of different ways I could go with this. I could go down the road, and a lot of people have done this, of Bill Belichick has become an anti-Belichick. He's become super conservative. And Aaron Schatz actually pointed out that this is a trend of his that dates back almost to like 2012 where he's been – punting when he should go for it he's been conservative with play calling and decisions you know you could go down that road you could go down the road of mac jones like talk about learning from a mistake in the moment right he throws the pick it was a bad throw with the right decision it was the bad throw like he, he could board have caught it sure but it was a bad throw. You got to place that throw better. He comes back and then rips the the vertical route to Bourne for the seventy five yard touchdown. And what I love about it is he went right at Diggs, right at Diggs. He's like, I'm not going to back down from you. I'm not going to be scared. This is the route I got to throw. And we talk all the time about how you can't play this position scared. Well, there you go. There's that. But what I th- I really want to focus on Dak. I, I really want to focus on Dak. I've been doing a lot of stuff on Dak this year. I wrote a piece about him. I did another lawn video like I do each week for Blogging the Boys. Dak is playing extremely well. He's playing extremely good football right now. Before he got hurt last year, I would have said he was one of the best in the game. And he's come back and has actually gotten, I'd say, better since then. He's thrown with anticipation, although you could see some of that last year. He's doing a lot more with his eyes, a lot more with manipulation. You see the out-and-up touchdown to Cooper a couple weeks ago. You see the touchdown he had to Lamb where he looks left, freezes the safety. And that throw, you and I joke about, yeah, freeze the safety in the middle of the field when you're throwing a go route along the sideline. Anybody can do that. He throws the go route to Lamb, and it's up the numbers. And that safety is a step late. That's the kind of manipulation that matters. Nate Tice tweeted out, I think it was on Monday night, that you know private quarterback coaches should take Prescott tape and make him teaching tape. And I, I think it's exactly right. Dak Prescott has become teaching tape. And the fact that he's become teaching tape now, I think back of those moments, you, me, Charles McDonald, and Lad Peebles, down in Mobile, just looking at each other like, I, I, I don't know what we do with this guy. He has come such a long way. It is a testament to him. It's a testament to the work he's done. It's a testament to his competitive toughness. Like I, Patriots, there are lots of angles there. I wanted to focus about on Dak. He's been incredible. Yeah, it was Dak is Dak is fantastic, and it's a, a credit to the Cowboys organization for taking him. Even if you took him late, you know, you're as a scouting department. The scouting department obviously saw something in him yep. that convinced the people upstairs to take a shot on. So usually I would find that the scouting department's going to be more excited about a player um, in, the, in the second half of the draft and, and see his value as opposed to the team that goes, well, okay, well, you know, we want everybody else we want to take and we could use a quarterback. Maybe we'll see what this guy's got. But the thing with 
deck that I also found impressive upon all that great analysis that you provided and that you can that you provide on Twitter for people to see as well as a, a TV wire is that I like his pocket management to the extent that not only is he become very efficient moving in the pocket but there there was a play where he throws the ball I believe it's either to Lamb or Noah Brown where he could have rolled out earlier and and he looked like he was about to roll out earlier but then he stops and stays in the pocket and directs Brown first and then rolls out and throws and by doing that he's more patient because he realized he had the space he had in there he sees if Brown follows his direction first and then when he rolls out it forces the defender to suck up into the flat and and try and attack Prescott so it was far more patient approach that I don't see from most quarterbacks nowadays because they usually roll out first and then direct people the yeah. fact that he had the wherewithal to direct the guy first, see if it happened, and then decide whether he needed to roll out and create the opening for the man was just fantastic. So that was one angle. Yeah, what you said about Mac Jones just going back after the guy, that's the thing about Mac Jones that we got excited about last spring is just yeah. the, the mentality, the attitude. And then the play that I really loved was the jump pass, only because it wasn't so much that he could execute a jump pass, um, or that I, it was my second opportunity to give a Sammy Ball reference, but right. it was really more that the fact that he could, in that moment, know that he had edge pressure coming off the right side, and he had, as he was beginning to look down or set his feet to make the throw, realized that the defender was going to be shooting at his legs, that he could get out of the way and make that last second adjustment and float that ball with placement in stride to that guy. That's the integrated skills I'm looking for from top players. You know, that, that skill where you can combine the mental, the physical, the conceptual, and then the intuitive ability to put that all in the moment and make a good play that you won't practice. We, you might have practiced all those things separately, but you wouldn't have practiced those things together unless you're Chad Kelly in the background somewhere on an empty field who's pretending he's playing football right now. So, <laughs> Don't you mean Mr. Unlimited Russell Wilson? Mr. Oh, that too. Well, yeah, well, Russ stole that from Chad, so there we yeah. go. That's how, uh, you know, but, you know, Russ did tell Chad he liked his game, according to Chad, but there we yeah. go. So, yeah, I mean, there was that. And then I'd say the last thing was it was nice to see Ramondre Stevenson back on the field after yep. he had worked his way out of the, the fumble doghouse, held onto the ball well, he showed the quick feet that you're looking for to be able to access lanes. But I love the fact, and has always loved the fact, that he knows who he is. So when you put him in the green zone, he's going to run through you. And yeah. he finishes well that way. And, and, you know, while he slipped on a play that, that he could have had an opportunity to maybe pick up a corner blitz, um, he, he saw it. He just slipped. He ran over one of his own um, blockers' feet and slipped. Um, but in, in the passing game, he was strong in the passing game. And I just think that, you know, he's obviously going to have a role on this team moving forward. It may not be a huge role, but you can see what he did last week. And I, at, at best, I'd expect more of the same, which is change of pace to Damian Harris to give him some substitute care touches. Um, 
rent green zone work and passing down work. And I think he'll continue to grow in the passing down game because, you know, James White is a great player in terms of what he offers, but when you can replace him with a guy like Stevenson who's a superior runner, and if he can continue to grow in that direction, that's what's going to end up happening is he's going to replace Bolden and White as what they had, you know, in that combo. And it could be a two-back backfield or maybe eventually even a one-back backfield. Yeah. So talk about Tua Talmubailoa. Were the, are Dolphins fans irrational about him in, say, the opposite way that Browns fans have been, at least a contingent of Browns fans have been irrational about Baker? I mean, I, I kind of feel like that both of those contingents are, like, ready to storm the facility and climb its walls and, you know, wave around flags and stuff to, like, get rid of these guys. Um, one to get rid of them and one to, like, keep the decision makers from getting rid of the other. Um, yeah. Is, is to a guy that when you watched him, it was the Jaguars, you know, as people would say, but are they irrational about him or do you feel like that he's someone that... Um, the Dolphins fans who want him out or have, have good reason? I mean, I think there are a couple of things at work. I, I think Justin Herbert, in a way, has poisoned everybody's brain. I mean, you're seeing that with this rookie class of quarterbacks, right? Like, they expect them to come in and be Justin Herbert right away. Obviously, with the Miami situation, you passed on Justin Herbert to draft Tua. So that's going to be the barometer by which Tua is measured until the end of his career. Is he Was he better? You know, Will he be better than Justin Herbert, or should they have gone in a different direction? Look, I'm recording this here in the D.C. area, and the discussion in the D.C. area is, did the Washington football team make a mistake drafting Chase Young? over Justin Herbert. Like, Justin Herbert has clouded and poisoned everybody's mind. So I think that's really uh, something that's going on here. Did Tewitt make some mistakes in this game against Jacksonville? Absolutely. You look at the interception, it was a bad read, it was a bad throw. I, I, I literally don't know what he was thinking on it. He had the play, I think, third down where he was scrambling. He could have just walked for the first down, made an ill-advised throw. They ended up, you know, converted it. But... You know, I, I think there are some things that he's doing that are positive. I, I think the way he's making some reads and some throws is good at times, is bad at times, but that's to be expected with a younger quarterback who, yes, it's his second year, but, you know, still has only so many starts under his belt. He's in his third offense in three years. Like, there's going to be an adjustment period and a learning curve, and I get that. I just think that the Herbert situation and how his career has unfolded has really sort of just poisoned the analysis of young quarterbacks generally and specifically in Tua, given the fact that the Dolphins passed on Herbert. I'd like every person who's down on Tua, every, let's put it this way, every male fan who's down on Tua to have their wife find out that their best friend is dating Brad Pitt and then have, your, have their wife compare and contrast should I have should I have dated you? Should I even be married? I mean, if my girlfriend can get this guy, you know, or if you're a female listening to this, you know, maybe have you know Idris Elba, you know, or like you know, or like, yeah. uh, or or maybe if you're a female, it's like you know, maybe if you know, I don't know, name name whatever woman that you find appealing that would be you know 
that would be in that Scarlett Johansson, I guess, probably right. from a lot of people. That could work. You know, so something like that. You know, I just look at this, and when I look at Tua, he has quick feet. He's very precise with his footwork. He's good at being able to manage the quick game. He moves in the pocket well. I saw some really nice placement over defenders. He has his his best weapons, other than Jalen Waddle, are Mike Jacecki, who mm-hmm. is a limited talent. He's good, but he's very limited in the box of what you can do with him because he's not going to beat you one-on-one. He's a zone tight end who basically wins at, at the – he can win contested catches, but he's not going to get open one-on-one against tight man coverage on the regular. Durham Smythe, who might be a better one-on-one tight end than Jacecki, but that's not saying a ton. He's just a good scrappy football player who – who had, who's a fine blocker and a good all-around player, but he's kind of like a, a Gary Barnage in the making. Um, and then Mac Hollins, um, yeah. that was about what he was playing with. Jalen Waddle basically was creating openings for those guys, which is why he's averaging about 8.7 yards per catch right now, because they've got to just throw him the ball and use him as an extension of the running game and a decoy for zones to basically attack him first and drift his way so that they can create openings for other defenders. So the fact that Tonga Bailoa's re, you know, j- coming back to play with that <coughs> kind of a lineup or with Devontae Parker even who, you know, is a is terrific at what he does well, but he's never really, he's progressed somewhat beyond athlete, you know. I mean, that's being unfair. He's better than that, but he's not, he's not going to be confused with Devontae Adams anytime soon. Right. And, you know, Randall Fuller's gone back underground as the Chicada of fantasy football. So you look at you look at this, he's he's very limited in what he has. And I thought he played very well. And they have a schedule ahead that looks pretty easy um, relative to a lot of teams. I think two is on his way up, if if anything. Yeah. So I'm I'm quite I think fans are a little bit irrational about him and I think the motivation you give is a fantastic one. So true or false, Sam Darnold is who the Jets saw. After the last two weeks, it's a lot easier to say true. Like, it, it, I, and I was somebody that I wrote after the 3-0 start, like I made the case for and against why he's actually turned it around or let's let's slow down here. You look at the teams that they've played. Like, you look at the fact that even in wins against New Orleans, he's making those boneheaded decisions that, like, one dumb Sam Darnold-type moment well, now you see in the past couple of weeks, he's really sort of come back to earth. You pull up his throws, you look at what he's doing, and it's like, granted, nice little comeback, and he made some throws late in that game against Minnesota, but I think right now, a lot of us that made the Adam joke case jokes, you know, earlier in the season, you know, we might need to sort of scrub those or at least dial them back a bit. Because it does seem like this is more, okay, this is now really who Sam Darnold is. He has talent, but you see, like, look, first interception he throws against Carolina. Like, his first play of the game. Like, general post-over concept, I just don't know what you're thinking here. Like, you've got both options early in the down, but to sort of slide, create, scramble, and then make this late throw, it's high school stuff. Like, you've got to be... If you're not confident in what you're seeing, 
then throw it away. It's first intent to open the game. Don't run around like a maniac and then make this late throw. Like that's that's not helping anybody. So I, I think unfortunately it seems like the Jets, at least right now, were right. Yeah, I mean, listen, I remember you saying to me, I'm surprised you don't like Sam Darnold more when we were watching him pre-draft. I thought I he was more like one of your dudes. Yeah. I, I figured he'd fit, you know, your he, prototype. He fit, but he he wasn't, that was the thing. And then I thought, then there was a part of me that was like, is Mark insulting me? And I don't know it. <laughs> Because, like, he thinks I just like, he, he thinks I like bro ball. That's basically yeah. what it was. And to an extent, I do. But, like, I want players who who process. Who can do it. Yeah, who can do it. And there's actually some process and thought in that. And don't repeat certain mistakes because they can't see it. Usually I like the guys who see it and just think they can get, get it there. I think right. Sam Darnold literally doesn't see things. Um, and what he does see... Um, he needs, you know, Ray Parker Jr. and and his and you know Egan and and Bill Murray and he needs the whole group to come right. come in with the music. So, um, you know, so when I look at it from that standpoint, Darnold, yeah, still doesn't see his own drops well. Still has issues with prolonging plays he shouldn't. Um, you know, he's he's like on the bad end of what you would say Jalen Hurts is in the middle of the spectrum on in terms of the type of quarterbacks who can create and uh, yeah I, I think that this experiment is going to be over within about um, you know by a season's end I, yeah. I'm, I'm not confident in that alright so Carson Wentz and Kyler Murray I was watching them yesterday or two days ago and they both had key audibles to run plays one where Kyler Murray you know saw the Browns you know basically creep up where they were they were gonna they had the line um, basically shifted mostly to one side and left a hole on the left side of the the, the the front and the safety was climbing to pressure and he audible to a run to chase Edmonds for a 40 yard game and then Carson Wentz had one against the Texans where the Texans were clearly playing pass they had their corners playing a a big cushion um, on each side outside um, and then there was it was clear that the edge players were going to pressure off of each each side and there was an opening off the left side as well and Jonathan Taylor took that ball on a lineback play for 83 yards so 100 and, 123 yards of ground yardage from runs called from audibles just on those two plays alone I'm just wondering are there any quarterbacks in recent years who were notably strong with audibles to the run because it would be a fun study to see who audibles the most to the run and how and how efficient those calls are when they do so. Yeah, it's a fascinating question and it's one of those moments where I wish I had a ton more time to like just dive into it. But I, I think in watching this lead the past couple of years, I mean, two guys that come to mind, and it maybe makes sense with how their offenses are structured anyway, are Cousins and Garoppolo. Like, yeah. for, for all the things you want to say about those two guys, they've got strong running games. They've got offenses that design the run game well, and they're both systems that can a lot of plays. So sometimes it's already in their mind, like, look, you've got to pass it a run. You know, these plays are canned together. Like, pick your 
pick your poison here, pick which one you want to do. And I think for the most part, those guys, when they have those opportunities, they make the right decisions with it. So I, I think those two guys, and maybe it's cheating a little bit because of their offenses and the, and the way the offense is structured and the run games that they have. Tom Brady, you know, and yeah. – and, uh, yeah, we're, we're praising, you know, arguably greatest quarterback of all time. But he's also somebody very good. And in those offenses where they can a lot of stuff and he's got two plays called at the line or he simply checks to a run, he does a very good job of it. I mean, you know, and not all quarterbacks have freedom to do that. A lot of the guys we've been talking about already don't. Um, but these guys do, and they've been able to, or at least they have the two plays can together to do it, and they do a good job of it. Yeah, I would add... It, though it was recently, um, Breeze was a yeah. guy who was very good at being able to check to the run and adjust. Um, and of course, Manning way back in the day. Right. But yeah, I, those that was one I was just curious more from your standpoint. If there's anybody that you that you saw, because there's anybody I looked at beyond that that I would know right. other than those those for sure. So yeah, great. So all right, let's talk about backups, players who. You know, they they may contribute, but you they are officially backups. And I'm not talking guys who, when you look at the number of touches, it's like Kareem Hunt in the timeshare with Nick right. Chubb. But who would be your all backup skill review? Give me a quarterback, maybe one two to two running backs, two to three receivers, and one two tight ends who are backups that you would feel the starters on an expansion team. I mean, I, I think an easy quarterback is Tyrod. And I've maintained a, a soft spot for Tyrod. It's been such a weird way that his career has unfolded. But I do think you see how he played. And, yes, it was week one. It was Jacksonville. It was all of that. He was throwing the ball extremely well. And I, I think an expansion team, you know, you're going to want, in all likelihood, you're drafting a rookie quarterback. But you're going to want a guy that can play right away. And I think Tyrod Taylor is that guy. I will still just mention that I still think that Brett Rippon can play in the National Football League, and I refuse to give up that ghost. So I, I like I'll, that. I'll slide a Brett Rippon uh, reference in there. When it comes to running backs, Ramondre Stevenson. If I had the opportunity to start Ramondre Stevenson on an expansion team, I'm ready to do it right now. Um, for all the reasons you walked through earlier, I think Stevenson is fantastic. Receivers, over the past couple of weeks, and he's been given an opportunity because of injuries, Cedric Wilson. I think Cedric Wilson is a very nice football player. His movement skills are good. The way he can sort of get himself open and scramble to those situations. His catch on the fourth down on Sunday against New England, that was a critical gotta have it moment. And obviously, look, he's in an offense with Amari Cooper and CeeDee Lamb. So when he plays, he's getting CB3 against him. But he's having success, and I'd be willing to give him a shot. Along that vein, a guy I mentioned a couple weeks ago, KJ Osborne from the Minnesota Vikings. Yeah. Like you watch him in overtime. He's getting stuff designed, called for him. They're going to him in critical moments. Yes, yeah, similar situation, right? You've got Justin Jefferson on one side. You've got Adam Thielen. So, of course, you're going to, like, put CB3 on him. I get it. But somebody that I think with, ex with additional opportunities and targets and things like that, the opportunity to be a, a wide receiver one or two on an expansion team, I would certainly do it. A tight end? Tommy Tremble. I, I liked Tommy Tremble coming out. I thought he was misused by Notre Dame. They had him as basically a third tight end and a blocking back. And he does that stuff incredibly well. But I think the limited opportunities he had to be a pure receiver, I thought he handled them well. I think given the opportunity to expand his game and what he's asked to do, he would excel at it. So Tommy Tremble is the tight end for me. 
nice. These are some nice. These are some nice picks. Obviously, I think Brett Rippon would be a good placeholder quarterback who could give you a competitive feel for what you're doing. And with the offense that I've run, I'd probably do that. Um, if I could pick two, of course, I'd contra- I'm contractually obligated to mention the guy out in the empty yep. field, Chad Kelly. Yep. I would still, I would probably still want to look at him and see. Um, but I'd put him through a process to see, make sure to see just how crazy he is, or if he's, or if it's really just more the NFL fearing that he's crazy and not doing their due diligence of the situation. Um, the situation certainly looks crazy, but you know we'll see from there. Um, running back. I'm going with Trey Sermon because I think the 49ers are nuts. Um, okay. And, and the reason I'll say that is this. I was told by a fan, I'll say this, I was told by a fan who does have connections to a prominent offensive coordinator who had once been connected to that team that, um, that they thought Trey Sermon um, had lots of issues that's all he said. Had lots of issues, and that they thought that Elijah Mitchell was better. That's all they said, and the rationale for that in coach speak is Elijah Mitchell is fast. He's fast, and yeah. the issues and the thing is, is, as my buddy Jay Moyer and I had on our podcast last week about running backs, the when you watch players in pads or uh, not in pads and their running plays in practice. Speed stands out. That's the only thing that stands out. Nuance does not stand out. And this team has always gone after Tevin Coleman to a fault, Jarek McKinnon to a fault, you know, Matt Breda to a fault. You know, you could say that that Raheem Mostert has been good, very good, and I think he's a very good running back, but he's a speedster and he's always hurt, you know, and they don't see when you watch on the field what Sermon has, and I had Scott tell me he's like we were talking about it about this very thing after I heard this, and I said what do you hear when you hear that? He goes I heard the same thing. I heard that basically that that was a I'll put it this way it was a bullshit um, vague phrase for we like the speed of Elijah Mitchell and that's what we value from a running back and we don't understand the nuance of the position and a lot and he would estimate that probably about 60% of the league doesn't understand the nuance of that position. And yeah. 30% are probably very good, and then maybe another 10 can have good, you know, have certain skills that are good with that. So, yeah, I would take Trey, I, that was my rant for that, but I'll take Trey Sermon because I think he's very skilled, um, and I think he could be a very good back. And obviously Khalil Herbert along with that because I'd get – Two play, Khalil Herbert can play outside. He can run some outside zone if I need him to. He's got that speed. He's a good cutback runner. But I have two good cutback runners who can catch and who have promise in the blocking game. Who are almost interchangeable in what they could and what they can offer. Um, so I would be happy with that. Um, at tight end, I'm going to go Travon Wesco, who's a player okay. that yeah, you know, I know you liked him. I, I liked him. He's quick. I think that he's a guy who I could use as an H-back, who I think just kind of got buried on a bad team, who can, who's a very good blocker. So I would use him as kind of the way that um, the, the Ravens use Patrick Ricard, um, you know, as a kind of a lead blocker and bulldozer, who can also go out and catch balls a little better than Ricard could. Um, mm-hmm. My second title would be Foster Moreau. 
I think Foster. Moreau, I always mentioned him. Yeah. 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 Moreau's a Moreau's a fine player. I and I think that he's someone that can give you enough streams uh, seam stretching to to feel good about, and he can also block. So I've got a good two tight end offense with my run game, with my play action quarterbacks, and if I need if it's whether it's Rippin or whether it's Chad Kelly, and I'm with Chad Kelly who basically said the only guy who can't beat me is Lamar Jackson in a right. race, and I know that for sure. I'd let him run a little bit. That yep. might knock some sense into him anyway, so that would be <laughs> fine. And, yeah. then, and then at wide receiver, I mean, there are a number of guys that we could probably look at here that would be, you know, Osborne I think is a great mention um, in terms of somebody that has value because of what he can do you know, on the inside, make contested catches. I roll with Keelan Cole, um, yeah, and Denzel Mims. I, you know, Denzel Mims in a play action offense where I can, where I can use him a little bit more as a shot guy downfield. I think Denzel Mims is just basically getting the same treatment because again, these guys come from the 49ers tree, and you know, just like the 49ers are like, well, we hold Brandon Ayuk to a higher standard, you know, so therefore because. He doesn't fit our offense. And this is a question, a bonus question I want to ask you tail end of this. Okay. Jay brought this up, and I thought it was fantastic about Ayuk and Sermon. His theory, and I totally understand the merits of it, is that Kyle Shanahan, like a lot of coaches and offense coordinators, they look at what they want in theory from a player. He's got to play all three positions of wide receiver. Or he's got to be able to, you know run outside with this level of speed um, and they and if the players don't have that they ignore or they downgrade what the player actually has because he doesn't fit what they ideally want to do so they'd rather get a guy like Mohamed Sanu who hasn't been a good runner after the catch on the level of Brandon Ayuk since about year three in Cincinnati you right. know, or back at Rutgers for that matter um, who's a good player in terms of when you think NFL player, but he's not a game changer. And everyone on the team probably who's a football player looks at Ayuk and go, why isn't our best player in the lineup? Why isn't one of our better players in the lineup right now? But same, with, same with Sermon if you've seen him run in games. So, you know, to me, I think the theory is, is that some guys, this is a... Kyle Shanahan is the high-end version of a successful play caller and a successful offensive mind who errs on the side of, let me make the players work to my scheme as opposed to fitting the scheme around my players. And as a result of that, they make some decisions that are head-scratchers. What's yeah. your thoughts on that? No, I think there's a lot to be said about it. It's that sort of tried-and-true you know, line of thinking that we often think about during draft season, right? It's, you know, teams ask the wrong questions. What can this guy not do? Instead of the right question, which is what can he do? And can he help us? And can that help us? And, you know, maybe you'd love to have a receiver that can play X, that can play slot, that can play Z, that can beat press, that can find soft spots versus zone. Those guys are unicorns. Like, it's not easy to find a guy that can do all that, particularly in draft time when you're looking at somebody to who you're going to draft in the in the first, the second, third round or whatever. So find the guy that can do some of that and find a way to, that, that you can use that in your offense, in your system. If, you know, to take the Trey Sermon example, maybe he's not practice fast. Okay. 
but yours in your system, don't you have enough confidence in your system that you'll be able to find ways that he can contribute with the other stuff that he offers? And so, yeah, I think at times all coaches fall into that. Look, my system is good enough. We need to find somebody that can, you know, make this work. We need to find somebody that can fit in all roles. And if we can't, we'll go back in time and grab somebody that maybe can give us 60% at all three roles rather than 100 at one and 25 at the other two. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Yep. So six months later, Zach Wilson, Davis Mills. <sighs> I'm gonna say Zach Wilson, um, you know, and I know I know I was relatively higher on him than you. Yeah. Um, Mills has done some good things the past couple of weeks. Mills does seem to be sort of trending slightly upward. Um, had some good reads, good throws, good decisions. Threw well in the move against New England a couple of weeks ago. Wilson has had shaky moments throughout. I mean, you look at his game against Tennessee. Yeah, he played well late, struggled early. You know, and then you look at, you know, how Wilson is playing, you know, against how he played against Atlanta. Like, struggled late. Like, struggled early. Um, But I still think that, A, he's talented enough to overcome some of this. B, I have more trust in the Jets organization right now, which – Tell me I would have said this, you know, six months ago. I have more trust in the Jets right now. But I do. I've got more trust in what the Jets are trying to build around the quarterback position from scheme fit, from trying to build out the offensive line to add in some weapons. They've been bitten bad by the injury bug. You lose Becton, who you thought was going to be protecting him. Remember, we talked about this, right? They had the idea that we are going to do everything we can to replicate what he had at BYU. We're going to have the system that he ran or very similar to that. We're going to try to build this offensive line because he played behind a great offensive line at BYU. Whereas the Texans scenario, they have a like six-year plan, it seems, where they're just going to like clear the decks and really sort of take a long sort of five-year plan approach to this. And so I still think six months from now it's going to be Wilson. But if you're going to turn around and tell me you believe it's Davis Mills, I can see the case. I think it's a great explanation for why you take Zach Wilson, and I think the most realistic argument that one can make is if you're going to go with one or the other, it's about which team you organization you believe in the most based yeah. on where they are at it right now. So I would agree in principle with that, though I'm going to take Davis Mills based on the talent just because yeah. I think that Davis Mills is shown that even with his sieve of an offensive line, he's better under pressure. I think he's he moves his feet better under pressure. I think he avoids um, I think he avoids pressure a little better um, in terms of staying in the pocket and he's more effective with his footwork where he can throw an accurate ball after he avoids avoids it. Um, so I'm a little bit bigger fan of that and I also think that Davis Mills is a a smarter quarterback in a lot of ways in terms of how he sees the field um and i think that i would i think that zach wilson i think davis mills is a guy that at worst i have a backup who's going to help me in the league yeah where i feel like with zach wilson he's more likely to crater if he yeah. doesn't stay the starter and, i mean yeah. a lot of people said about wilson it's very boom bust yeah. it's very boom bust and right now while I still think you might get closer to the boom, like the bust is becoming more of a potential situation here. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, you know, you can't see the screen here. Um, but Oh, is it ad read time? But it is ad read time oh, yeah. here at the very RSP. Exciting. Yes, this is very exciting because, you know, Mark Schofield is wearing our unofficial sponsor, which is Puma. I wear Puma wear as well. But, you know, obviously Mark likes cats. And I do. if you've seen, you know, lately, if you would like to have the ability to deal with <laughs> The, you know, as an athlete, to become good at, at being able to avoid defenders, to be able to have great footwork like Derrick Henry running up and down hills, then you too need to take the Mark Schofield interpretive cat dancing course that is available for you for really less than a cup of I coffee once a day. giving this away, people. Yes, he is totally giving this away. The dancers that are on the screen right now that you won't be able to see dancing with the cats are the, the screen, you know, you can't see it on Included. The dancers are not included unless you can recruit maybe your wife and kids to get involved in this as well. Um, but yes, it's fun for you, it's fun for your cat, and it's good for your footwork. You can buy it now at Mark Schofield, catinterpretedancing.com. And I just want to say for the people out there, listen and listen, Right now, we've are, we've only got the catter size. It's an up-tempo workout with your cat. We are working on cat yoga, okay? We're going to have feline yoga. We're also going to have, uh, we're going to incorporate some of the TB12 method pliability with catability. You're going to be doing some stretching stuff to really get your muscles engaged to come back from catter size and from cat yoga. So listen, we are building out the repertoire of cat exercise programs for you. So yeah, Matt mentioned the website, check it out. Um, if you got any questions about it, please DM me. Yeah, absolutely. And the and if you order now, the, the hanging cat ball is also included. It is great absolutely. for hand-eye coordination. Um, yeah. And then it'll eventually be used for the Reiki, um, you know, the Reiki portion of the, right. uh, of the program that will be coming out in the next six to eight months. It's gonna be yeah. fantastic for everybody. So, yeah, so absolutely. You know, Log on and buy now, kids. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> that was great, Mark. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. Ad reads. Every once in a while, you need an ad read. So, uh, yeah. yeah. A legitimate show has ad reads. That's this right. It's a legitimate show. But to be legitimate, I will say this. If you haven't gotten the rookie scouting portfolio, have never taken an opportunity to get it, the one thing that I do sell on a regular basis is that product is allows us to be able to put on this podcast to be able to do the work that we do on do the work I do on Twitter and you know it is basically honestly it's the best thing that I do by far um, and absolutely it, everything that I do on Twitter on YouTube is basically research that goes into the RSP you can learn more about it at mattwaldman.com or mattwaldmanrsp.com it's been around for it's going into its 17th year. There's a reason why I've been doing it for 17 years. And that, um, you know, I've got construction going on in the background because if I, um, so, you know, it, it's, it works. It's, it's something that people will find of value. So, yep. listen, with that in mind, I did have a, a longtime reader say to me, I think you made a mistake on your dynasty rankings because you, you had Odell Beckham a little higher than Deontay Johnson. You know, what gives on that? So I want to know from you, if you were a contender, you know, and I'm phrasing this more in a way, there's 
good answers for any of these. If you, it may be different for everything, but if you were a contender in a dynasty league, or say if you're a contender in an NFL team, let's put it that way, a contender in an NFL team, would you trade for Odell Beckham or Deontay Johnson if contracts weren't an issue? Yeah, I have two different answers. If it, if it's a dynasty situation and you're a contender this year, I'm trading for Deontay Johnson. There you go. Without looking back, because there is a problem right now between six and thirteen in Cleveland. Yeah. And I, I was on with Jake Burns. Uh, we recorded a show on Monday night. We went through the film um, of the Browns' offense against Arizona. Odell's open. Yeah. Odell is open, and for whatever reason, Baker is either not throwing to him or he's coming to him very late. They are missing opportunities. When he did throw to him early against the Chargers, there was a fourth down draw. I don't know what it is. So if I'm in a dynasty league, consider those two players. I'm worried about the relationship between quarterback and receiver in Cleveland. I'm not worried about that relationship. You know, concerns you might have about Ben Roethlisberger aside, Roethlisberger's throwing to Johnson. Yeah, and so you are going to get the benefit of the quarterback relationship if you are a fantasy team. If I'm an NFL franchise, however, I'm going to trade for Odell. You know, you're telling me contract isn't an issue. I'm going to trade for the guy that is still getting open, that is still finding opportunities to, you know, make plays in the downfield passing game that will certainly free up some stuff for other players in the, in the underneath passing game. You're seeing, you know, coverage at times rolled to Odell. If you drop Odell into a scenario, say like, you know, a team that might be a receiver or like just, we'll just say New England for the heck of it, just for the heck of it, sure. right? You drop Odell into that, Jacoby Myers, Nelson Aguilar, you know, Odell. Now you've got Hunter Henry or the 12 personnel package. We've got Aguilar, Odell, the two tight ends. You're not telling me Odell is going to create some space for those other guys. If you're an opposing defensive coordinator, who are you worried about out of the gate? You're worried about 13 and not, you know, the other two receivers at least. And so if I'm an NFL team, I'm trading for Odell. If I'm a dynasty player, though, right now, given what I'm seeing from that Cleveland offense, I'll trade for DJ. How about for the next two to three years? Mm, that's tougher, you know, because there's a lot of talk in Cleveland about, I think it's more right now, you know, what are they going to do with Odell going forward? So you might see Odell elsewhere where he could benefit. Um you know, that's more of a, I'd still probably trade for DJ as a dynasty player, um, but I'd want to see if Odell got moved. And if he did, then I might feel better about his landing spot. Yeah, and that's and, and it's a great point because, like, if I'm in a win-now situation, I want Deontay Johnson. Totally agree with that. If it's a two- to three-year thing, I'm more on Odell just because I think he's too good for a team to just let him languish there if it's not working out in Cleveland. You know what I mean? Like, there's going to be feelers for that guy, um, even though the contract's big. And I'm just not sure if Baker Mayfield's going to work out in Cleveland. So, right. you, you know, you look at that, and if when I ask that question to myself, I think, would I rather have Case Keenum going to Odell Beckham or Ben Roethlisberger going to Deontay Johnson? And I'd say, in terms of right now, Deontay Johnson. Yeah. But... If in the next two years, who's the who are the Steelers going to have? Are they rolling with Mason Rudolph and and Josh Dobbs? Are they getting a quarter? Who are they going to get as a quarterback? You know, that's a little bit of an unknown to me too. So I would probably say, considering the unknowns of both players, 
I would go with the more talented player, and I think Beckham's a little bit more talented. Not, the, not a slight at Deontay Johnson, but I think Beckham has a little more to offer, and I think you know, I look at it from that standpoint. But it is, yeah. it's, a close, it's a close call. Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. So what offense do you think is on the rise in the next four to six weeks? I mean, I don't know if they're technically on the rise. I've been very impressed with Minnesota. And I, I think Kirk Cousins, I know he missed a throw early in that game. And I, I know there's still portions of the Minnesota fan base that have their reservations about Cousins, and I get it. But I think Cousins has played really well right now. I, I was very impressed with some of the reads and throws that he made against Carolina, particularly the two big throws to Osborne in overtime. You know, I included those sort of in my, my three throws breakdown of them this week. Um, so I, I think Minnesota is an offense that I've kind of been impressed with. Jacksonville only because, A, Urban Meyer is now he's got to use James Robinson, who I, th- I think is the better option for them at running back. You and I have talked about James Robinson a ton. B, they're targeting Marvin Jones in the passing game. And C, whatever you want to say about Trevor Lawrence, I think over the past couple of weeks he's played very good football. I, I think Trevor Lawrence over the past couple of weeks have sh- has showed you why he was quarterback one and people thought he was QB one for a while. So I think they're going to get better. They're getting better. They got their first win. It's, look, Urban, that situation, it is what it is. I, I'm still surprised he's he's there. I'd still be surprised if he's there next season. But I think this offense is starting to figure some things out. Like it. Like it. I'm going to go in a direction that I think most people who want, listen to this show or listen to me talk about quarterbacks on a regular basis would probably be surprised. Indianapolis Colts, I think that um, Carson yeah. Wentz isn't playing bad football. I no, he's not. Not at all. I think that they finally figured out that Jonathan Taylor can be an all-around back because for the past, um, he's basically had a 50-50 split in receptions with Naeem Hines. And everybody thought Naeem Hines would be basically it as the passing back. And not only is it that um, Jonathan Taylor being able to earn a split in touches, but they're starting to scheme throws to him. He's not just the outlet guy. They're letting yeah. him run screen plays that they would normally run to Naeem Hines. So now that he's eating into what was Naeem Hines' bag and he's succeeding with that, um, you know, it's hard to be able to keep Taylor off the field other than as giving somebody to give a breather or maybe in the two-minute situations. But, but still, it's a... You know, Taylor is now really coming into his own as a full-fledged all-around back. And then you add to the mix T.Y. Hilton, who had a nice game last week before going down with the, the quad, re-aggravation of his quad, but it doesn't look to be too, too serious. And say it is serious enough to miss a game or two, I'm okay with that because the next six to eight weeks of the, that schedule are either bad teams with bad defenses or teams with really good offenses where they're going to have to throw to keep up. And so, to me, I look at this, and I think that this is an offense that's on the rise. It's going to score a lot of points over the next four to six weeks. Um, you, you know, I would I would add the Dol- – I think the Dolphins have some have a pretty easy schedule on the horizon with two back. You know, yep. if they can get – you know, they, I don't think they're as strong, but I love the, the treble, Trevor Lawrence mentioned, but – Carson Wentz for me and the and the Colts are yeah. fascinating. I, I I love that you picked that because I wrote this weekend. I'm not there yet, but I'm 
again, it was Houston, you know, yeah. two weeks ago it was Miami. Granted, he played well against the Ravens, but there was still the sack he took late, and they lost that game. Part of that's on the defense, too. They were gassed. They couldn't get stopped whatever. I'm not there yet, but I'm warming up to the idea that Carson Wentz landed in Indianapolis might have fixed it. I'm, yeah. I'm warming up to that idea because what I love about what they've done recently, it's been vertical. It's been vertical in the passing game. And near the end of his time in Philadelphia, I kept saying, look, they're trying to build a vertical passing game. Like, that's what they want. They drafted Hurts, who I thought was better fit to be a backup quarterback in a vertical-based passing offense. They get Watkins. They get Hightower. Even Jalen Ragor a bit. They're trying to get downfield in the passing game. That didn't quite mesh with Peterson, and the Wentz relationship fall, falls apart. He goes to Frank Reich, and everybody, myself included, thinks it's going to be you know West Coast, all that stuff. They're doing stuff downfield, which might fit Wentz better with where he is right now as a QB. Yeah, and to me, I mean, I kind of am a Wentz is what he is in the pocket, and that's not going to ever change. Um, I'm a more of a believer in that, so he's going to have his flaws. But with what he has around him, it works. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, Michael Pittman wins footballs. T.Y. Yep. Hilton is one of the best contested catch small receivers that's been in the league in the past 10 years, and he can play yep. perimeter. But when you put him in the middle, he's Marquise Brown. Before yep. Marquise Brown ever saw, as I joked, I've been joking a couple of times today, he's, he's Marquise Brown before he ever was on varsity football in, in high school. And, yep. you, you know, so this, you know, and then you have, you know, the Paris Campbell's out. You still have Zach Pascal, who's a competent outside receiver. So... That you know, you can do you can do a lot with the weapons they have there. So yeah, with that in mind, let's see what else. All right, Ravens Chargers. We've talked up Herbert last week, yeah. and and he earned it and deserves it. But you know, the Ravens did some, did a pretty good job off the edges against some of those tight formations that the Chargers ran, and got through cleanly with edge blitzes, corner blitzes, the safe defensive back blitzes, and got to Herbert repeatedly. Do the Ravens have a matchup advantage if there's a playoff game now at this point? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it starts here. The Chargers are a 4-2 football team, right? So game scripted stuff doesn't play into these numbers. But right now, the Chargers are giving up 5.4 yards per rushing attempt as a defense, they have, which is worse than the league. They have given up 162.5 yards per game on the ground, which is worse than the league. You look at expected points contributed by run defense. The Chargers right now, their defense has contributed minus 25.05 expected points, which is second worst in the league. The only team that's worse the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, those are that's numbers from pro football reference. And so the fact that they're giving up the most yards on the ground per game, that's not a game script then. It's not like they're losing games and teams are just running the ball to work the clock. You look at football outsider, football outsiders team DVOA ratings on defense, the worst rush DVOA defense this year, the Los Angeles Chargers. Now, what do the Ravens do particularly well? Well, they have Lamar Jackson, who's fantastic. But they also like to run the football. And that matchup is tough. So they can, the Ravens, put the fear of God that they're going to be running the football, and then they pull it and throw it with number eight, who might be playing the quarterback position. I mean, there are a lot of guys playing the quarterback position. I mentioned Dak, Kyler, 
you know, there are a lot of guys playing that position really well right now. Lamar Jackson's right among them. He's doing all the things that people have said for years he couldn't do, although people like you and others, myself, have said that he could. But you put that together, that's a very tough matchup for the Chargers when the Ravens have the football. We saw that this weekend. Yeah, yeah. And whether they get their linebackers, their health, their linebackers healthy because they were missing two starting linebackers last week. Um, but even with the linebackers that they have, Juio and um, Murray, Murray's a highly reactive player. Um, so with this type of an offense, it doesn't suit him very well um, right. in terms of what he has to face. It tests his flaws to the limit. So I'm, I'm with you. I think that both defensively and offensively, this is the case where the Ravens have a distinct advantage over a team. Um, yeah. So one last NFL question, then we'll get to the, the off-topic stuff. What are your thoughts on Mike Tomlin? Because, you know, as I'll just give a little bit of the a little bit of this away. I it seems like every every six months I I look at the football guys message board. I do look at it more frequently, the uh, the, the employee message board pretty much daily. But every six months I see on that board some debate about Mike Tomlin, you know, because we have a bunch of Steelers fans on that board. Um, what do you think of Mike Tomlin as a coach? I would play for him in a heartbeat. I would absolutely play for him in a heartbeat. And this is not the William and Mary bias, right? Like he's a William and Mary guy. I went to William and Mary Law School. Um, it, it's not that. It's the fact that you can tell that he's somebody that players want to play for. You know, you can tell that it's similar to John Harbaugh. It's similar to some of the other coaches we're seeing where they believe in their guys they will trust their guys they will have their guys backs but they will also look that they, they, they won't be afraid to pull you aside and let you know when you've made some mistakes they will handle things the right way you know i i, I watch mike tallin i watch how he handles games i watch how he handles his players i watch how he handles players like there, there's no other moment well there have been lots of moments this season, but there's no other moment that sort of made me think like, yeah, he's a coach that gets it. Not only do his own players appreciate it, but others appreciate it. When he had that timeout against the Packers, and he sort of like looked at Rodgers like, I knew you were about to get me, and I had to burn a timeout, and Rodgers kind of just like laughed right back at him because he knew. He's like, look, yeah, you're exactly right. Like, that's the stuff that I love to see. You know, the, the, the Rodgers, how can you not be romantic about football? So, I would play for Tomlin in a heartbeat. Yeah, I'm with you, all one thousand percent. Mike Tomlin is, I think, a fantastic coach. The problem is, is that most people see coach in a very limited view and an accurate view. They think of coaches as play callers. They think right. of coaches as offensive or defensive minds. So then right. they start focusing on what the coach isn't doing up in his, you know, laboratory to right. create things because. They think of Bill Walsh as the model of the guy who's created an offense and then handed it down and taught it to a bunch of other coaches. That's one way of doing it, the Paul Brown, you know, Bill Walsh way, certainly. But there's also the Bill Parcells way, which yeah. is let's hire people to do their job, and my job is to delegate, create a culture, and to, to ask questions and evaluate what's going on at all times, talking to my players, listening to my coaches, listening to my players, listening to the people in the front office, 
working on all of it together, looking for problems and finding ways to solve them. And Mike Tomlin does that extremely well. The problem is, is that most people who are in management don't understand management and aren't very really good at it because they either over-delegate or under-delegate um, to a, and most under-delegate to a fault. The over-delegators tend to get fired pretty quickly. The ones who are labeled successful in their corporate careers are usually ones who under-delegate and, and take on too much, but they're always on, you know, they're always basically two steps away from like mental health issues at this point because right. of the fact that they're under so much stress that they put on themselves because they don't trust other people and they can't let go and figure out that balance. It's a hard thing to do. So, you know, Mike Tomlin's been great at that. And, and a guy who really highlighted that for me about 10 years ago was Chad Spann, the, the former running back and oh, yeah. you who he, he got to be in a camp with Peyton and the, and the Colts. He was with Raheem Morris in, in Tampa Bay and he was with the Texans and the Jets at one point before he went to the CFL, but he was also with the Steelers. And he said the Steelers' experience by far was the most professional football team that he had been a part of from the moment he arrived to the moment that he left. And that the, the culture that they instilled, the way other players were encouraged to help each other out and teach, and to work with one another, even in practice squad guys, the way that um, everyone, you know, when you came aboard, they shook your hand, they wanted to get to meet you, they, they, they had a way about going about doing things from the moment you arrived to the moment that you left. Um, and on top of that, while you might look at Shanahan, um, you, you know, you might look at, excuse me, you might look at Tomlin and you might look at, you know, Roethlisberger, maybe he's hanging on too long. Maybe the offensive coordinator isn't, you know, is under fire. You look at this team and they're able to stay competitive. Yeah. And maybe he's hung on to a player a year too long. Understand? The player he hung on to, I get why they did. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm I'm totally good with Tomlin. Would absolutely play with him. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So. Two, two off-topic questions. Um, what's the TV show where the consensus view may be that they love an aspect of it or hated an aspect of it that you completely part ways with the consensus on? This one's interesting. I thought about this one for a long time. Um, I'm going to say The Good Place. And this was a show that I thought was going to be right up my alley. And there are things that I do like about it. I thought Early Good Place was, was fantastic. Or Kirsten Bell was Ted Danson. Like, they were incredible. I would love if that show was on right now because you had the character that loved Blake Bortles because he was a Jacksonville guy. Like, to see him now being able to, like, talk about Trevor Lawrence. Like, I, I think that would have been... So there are aspects of that show I love. I love the creator, Michael Shore. Like, He's, he was Moe's on The Office. Like he wrote the Fire Joe Morgan blog like back in the day on Twitter as Ken Tremendous. Like Michael Shore is like brilliant, and I nine times like ninety nine percent of the time I like love everything he puts out. I watched The Good Place and it was like okay, like lots of people like love it, like swear by it, like thought it was one of the greatest shows ever. I just never quite sort of got there as other people did. And a, a show that's on now that I'm, I'm working my way through it, I will continue to watch because the lead character is just, I, I'll watch anything to judge, is Hacks. 
um, the show about um, a older Las Vegas comedian. She's at the end of her career, kind of, and she has this like comedy writer who basically gets gets fired because she gets canceled because she made a joke about a, a senator coming out of the closet. So she gets fired. She loses her spot writing for a sitcom in L.A. And her agent is like, the best thing I can do for you is to go write jokes for this woman out in Vegas who's got like her, you know, residency at some like long time Vegas casino. And they're trying to take that away from her. Like people loved it. I haven't fully bought into it yet. I will keep watching it because Jean Smart is just, like I said, she's incredible. Oh, she's, great. she's absolutely incredible. Put her, put her on stage, read in the phone book and I'll, I'm, I'm there. And I think I'm starting to like get there with it. Like there was an episode, the, the one we just watched, like Gene Smart basically told this, this this woman, like, go down to my basement in my huge palatial Vegas estate and transcribe all of the stuff I've archived. And the woman walks down there and it's just a room filled with just old v beta backs and VHS tapes of every apparent she's ever had. And the woman thought it was punishment. But at the end of this one episode, she sees the pilot for a Tonight Show type of show that Gene Smart's character was given a chance to do. And she just was laughing and crying at the jokes, and it was great. It was brilliant. And at the end of it, you see Gene Smart walk down the stairs in the background, and she's like soaking it all in. That scene was like, okay, if it continues down this road, I'm going to get it. So I might get there eventually. I'll continue watching because of Gene Smart because I love her. She's incredible. Um, but I'm not there yet. I'm going to go with Game of Thrones. Um, I diverge completely with most people on Game of Thrones. And and it's because, you know, my wife and I have watched this show probably at least 20, 25 times because my wife likes to watch things over and over again. And we have these kind of book club discussions about this show. And we both kind of agree on this point. And I think what happens is that when you have a show that has, what, eight, nine seasons, eight seasons to it, and it's based on books, a series of books, even though they've changed a lot of what was in the book, it's a novel. This is a this is a basically a novel on the screen, and yeah. as such, novels are meant to be read repeatedly because there's a lot of backstory information and a lot of rich information that creates subtlety that can be lost when you just look at it in the moment. <coughs> and so, the conclusion that drives people crazy with that show, where Daenerys is on the dragon. At the tower, hears the bells, they see the deranged look on her face, and they go, We don't, it made no sense that she went crazy and did what she did. That just absolutely sucks. I hate it. They ruined the show. I'll put it to you this way if you go back and watch it, you will understand that Daenerys, they, from, the, from the moment they say, Whenever a Targaryen is born, that you flip a coin, yep. they're crazy or they're not. <coughs> she and if you really watch her, she is a metaphor for America. Okay, she is a metaphor for America or a developed country, but I would say America, because you know this may ruffle some feathers, but whether you agree or not, I'm not going to tell you whether I agree or not. But I under I think the point is valid that we've seen from history <coughs> that maybe we didn't need to drop two bombs on Hiroshima to end the war. We were winning the war. Now, could it have saved more or less lives? There are diverging historical analysis about that point, you know, and 
as someone who just tries to look at things from an open-minded view, I can understand the validity of the argument either way. So when you look at someone like Daenerys, she's, do, she's supposedly the savior who's helping all of these people. But every time she's the savior, she does horrific things to the enemies. Things yeah. that you normally, you know, if there were, you know, more horrific things than other people in the Game of Thrones who were seen as horrific did. You know, crucifying all the slave masters. Yeah, yeah. You know? the Marine, the whole Marine plot, yeah. I, I'm going to follow yeah. up on this, but I just want to say, the whole Marine plot line was just brutal. Yeah, and each time, if you know, she's a very insecure person who's like, she needs to be introduced like Apollo Creed in every instance. You know, yeah. like the moment where Jon Snow and her get introduced, and it's funny because it's like, I'm the breaker of James, I'm the master of disaster, I'm right. the, you know, whatever Apollo had, and then it's like, this is Jon Snow. <laughs> Jon Snow! Oh, oh yeah, he's king of the north, you know? But one is secure in who they are and wants to do good for people, and the other, because if Daenerys were really, like, a good person, and were really like not deranged and not completely troubled by insecurities and only had a crack of of like that glimmer of appeal that got people to want to get behind her that they thought she they could change her or influence her you should look at the fact that all she had to do was say you know Sansa the north listen after you, we fight this battle if you will fight this battle for me to take the crown you will remain an independent kingdom that's all she had to do, and they would have done. The North would have done everything for her yep. if she had the wherewithal just to do that. Like she even needed the North, but she was deranged. And then when she lost everyone, she lost, you know, because she didn't have kids. Her kids were her dragons. She had, you know, the one guy who proved everything to her, Jorah, basically, who she had banished and threatened to kill, and he came back. And she stayed with him. She watched him die in her arms, you know. Yeah. So all of these things happened, and her insecurity about all this that was always there. She was never anything more than this than the, than what she was. But we wanted to believe in her being different, and I think that that's kind of like the way Americans often see America, which is you can love America and still have issue with some of its flaws. Yeah. You know, that's what a lot of countries in this world who have been around longer understand about themselves that I think Americans sometimes don't understand. It's a, it's a very much a um, knee-jerk patriotism that can happen in some regions and certain corners of our society. And I think that she can be, a, you know, a metaphor. And metaphors that writers make aren't always like, I'm planning on making her represent America. Right. It's just... It's just happens that she does fit that kind of you know nationalistic you know everything we do is to save other people kind of thing and we overlook things until we go wow that was kind of horrific of what we incurred or what we did and i think that she represents that and i and it and, it, and i find it fascinating that people were so like this doesn't work and i think part of it is that they've only seen this once and then tv writers who do reviews only saw this once and so they they didn't really give it a nuanced analysis either and it reinforced the, yeah. the view. I, 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 I want to pick up on a couple of things there I, I think I know we're running long here on Mark and Matt take the black here but I, I think there are a couple of things to, to mention one I, I know there's a lot of criticism about the showrunners like 
did a bad job of sort of landing the plane. But I think the idea that Daenerys was just, you know, messed up from the beginning is a good point, and it's the right one, because you're talking about a woman that saw her brother burned alive with, like, molten gold. She encouraged it. Road. She was like, that's cool. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is somebody that was a little bit off to begin with, and, like, the signs were there, the whole Marine storyline, like, and, you know, th- th- there were aspects to her character, to Daenerys Targaryen, that, you know, that was going that they were building towards that and yes a lot of people thought oh well she just lost her mind because Jon Snow got the credit after you know the, the battle of, of Winterfell no no, no. Listen, like it was yeah. building towards that yeah look at the conversation with Sansa before the war look yeah. at the fact that every time she has to introduce herself to someone there's this insecure little girl yes she's a brave woman yes yeah. she's tough Yes, she does some strategically really great things that are difficult, but she's also someone who is brutal, even more brutal than the brutal time. You know, if you really look relative to that, she was even more brutal than that brutal time. And at her core, she was still basically this insecure girl who was power hungry, and her whole goal was to have power. Even her advisor, Dario, said, you're not a ruler, you're a conqueror. Yeah. Be a con, you know, and and she was encouraged, you know. So there's part of that that's there. The the older woman, the high born, um, the you know, the one who poisons. Um, oh, Alana Tyrell. Alana Tyrell. She's wants vengeance. So at the end yep. of their meeting, she's like, "Be a dragon," yep. you know, because she she wants her own way. Because she's you you see her. Uh, my wife loves her character, but she's, oh, she's a, the best. Yeah, she's, she's the best. She's, and. The best bar on death scene I've seen ever. Yeah. Where she's just like, I want her to know. You know, tell, yeah. tell Cersei it was me. Yeah. Like, yeah. gangster. Yeah. And so to me, I thought it all made sense. And I even see Jon Snow being banished to the north as a reward. And it's a slick little reward that is that Bran made. Because Bran, because Jon told, Jon told Tormund, I would like to go with you back to the yeah. north. I wish I didn't have. I like it there, you know. Yeah, that's what Norman's always saying. Saying you're a north, you have the you're north, the real north yeah. in you. You know, yeah. you, this is it. He didn't want to rule. He didn't want all of that. His, you know, he he fits that mentality. So, and I think you see it slowly dawn on him at the very end of the show that, oh, I didn't get punished. This is actually a reward. This is where I wanted to this be. This is where I wanted to be. After he got over himself of thinking, I let people down, I could have done more to help, I could have made this better, all the things of the duty bomb. Once he got rid of, once they relieved him of his duties and it, and it sunk in, he looked around and said, Brand did me right, you know? Yeah. And that's the end of the show. And that was his reward. So, yeah. So, with that in mind, I, you know, Last question: What's your favorite restaurant in town, man? Um, that, that's an interesting one. Um, here on Mark, Mark and Matt take the black. Um, I'm gonna say Sushi Oishi, and it's interesting. I had like a couple weeks ago tweeted out a picture of like a, a thunderstorm rolling in when I was at a shopping plaza. You asked me about Bagel Town Bagels, which was a bagel shop in there, and we had a quick little discussion about that. But a reader of yours who lives nearby mentioned the sushi place, and so I'm gonna plug it now. Sushi Oishi, which I absolutely love. It's 
my favorite sushi spot in town. I have a craving for it. Like my wife and I typically order out for carry out, like, you know, either Friday, Saturday or Saturday, Sunday. I cook dinner pretty much the rest of the week. But it's like every week I'm like, well, sushi oishi. They've got two rolls I love, the sweetheart roll, which is a special heart-shaped roll with spicy tuna and avocado topped with tuna, spicy mayo, and a sriracha sauce. And they've also got their Tokyo roll, which is spicy tuna, yellowtail, whitefish, and cucumber topped with salmon, tuna, whitefish, tempura flakes, and a wasabi mayo sauce. Those Man. two I absolutely love. Man, all out. I love sushi. Yeah. That's a yeah. great recommendation. Well, down the road from where I used to live, there's a place called Marie's Italian Deli, which I, I could practically live there when... I'm not being very good to myself, but uh, but it's a or being good to myself depends on how you look right. at it. But um, it's a family-run place. They're 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 family out who moved from like Torrance, California, um, second gen generation Italian immigrants who run this deli, and they have you know things from Italian beef to um, you know to meatball subs to different types of hot and cold sandwiches, they have a great salad, like a farmer salad. Everything's sourced fresh to the point that like, um, a trainer I know was like, if you're gonna eat out, that's a place you're gonna wanna eat because I know where they get their food. Uh -huh. And they get they get quality, they always get quality ingredients. They have a, a bakery in there where the sister of the owner makes like a lemon blueberry cake that is unbelievable, all their cakes are, and pies are fantastic. Um, and then they make stuff to go that they don't sell, like, to, they only sell it to go. And it's like lasagna. They do different types of um, meat dishes and charcuterie stuff. And then they have, um, they, they even do, like, um, Thanksgiving. Oh, wow. And we, and we when we, my wife and I were staying at, like, an extended stay between, for a few months while we were moving, we actually did the Thanksgiving and had like the, got the turkey from them and everything and they did just a fantastic job with all of that. Awesome. So, so yeah, and it's just a family joint. Everybody knows you. you just, it, it's yeah, so, I mean, to yeah. piggyback off of that, Jamelli's, which is around the corner from me on Darnstown Road in, in like the Gaithersburg area, similar like small family run Italian deli. Like what I love about them, they have like the pre-made sauces like just go in, grab a jar of Alfredo, and grab a jar of bolognese, and boom, you've got dinner ready. They've got fresh hand-rolled pasta. They've got the, their Italian sub, which I get with everything on it, including the oil and the hot peppers. It's, it's, it's incredible. I remember the first time I got that sub. And, I mean, it, it, it's a footlong. It, it's a big boy. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to eat some of this now and have the rest later for, like, dinner or something. 25 minutes later, I'm like, I'm going to eat the whole thing now. Like, I don't care. I'll feel so sick afterwards, but I don't care. It was that uh, good. So, yeah, you just, yeah. you, you top the joint I'm at for sure, but just from what you described of it. But it's a great, where I'm at is a great joint. But I would yeah. say, I'd definitely love to check out where you're talking Absolutely, about. Absolutely, man. Next yeah. time you're up here, man, we'll eat at Jamali's and then Sushi Oishi for dinner. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds great. So, listen, folks, we hope you enjoyed the show. Obviously, follow Mark Schofield and all the wonderful work that he does. And for being a good sport at the barbs that I throw at him, um, you know, during these Look, people, if you, if you can't laugh at yourself, then, come on. Yeah, exactly. You know, so for for Skip Bayless, Stephen A. Smith, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to be on Twitter this morning to know this. You know, we are out of here. Have a good week.